Father, Son, and Spirit, we do praise you and thank you that we are part of this global family uh, with our brothers and sisters in Haiti, our brothers and sisters in South and Central America, in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, all over the world. We are your children. You are our Father. Jesus is our brother. Your Spirit is within and among us. We thank you for this amazing privilege and gift. We pray now that you would pour out your Spirit upon us in the reading and preaching of your Word that we would not just hear the words of Jesus today, but that we would respond to them with obedience and with love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. It's so good to see you all. Um, I missed you last week. Last week I was down in um, North Carolina visiting my parents who live near Asheville. And on Saturday I was up in the mountains fly fishing with my dad, and it was some pretty miserable weather, but any any weather really up in those mountains on the creeks is a good day. And um, I was out there with him, and I was just getting out my first cast, and, and I looked up, and I saw approaching me a very uh, sort of friendly, smiling park ranger. And uh, he approached me, and he said, uh, may I see your license? <laughs> it, was, it was very innocent. It was a very innocent question. He was just doing his job. He was very nice. But for me, it was a terrible question, because at that very moment I remembered that I had no license. <laughs> um, and so I spent the next 45 minutes with that nice man, uh, giving him all of my information so that he could write me an expensive citation. I, the, you, you might know, if you've been with us at all, you, that we're in this series called The Questions of Jesus. And you know, I think sometimes, especially if you don't know Jesus very well or if you're just learning who he is, um, you may be reading the Gospels and experience his questions, sort of like I experienced the question of that park ranger. Um, you hear Jesus question with things like, why do you doubt? Where is your faith? Who do you say that I am? Why do you worry? And then we sort of brace ourselves, trying to figure out what is the right answer to give to this man so that I can avoid a divine citation. But I, I, I hope that what you're realizing in our study of these questions is that Jesus is asking these questions to people not to test our mettle, not to provoke the correct answer, not to examine our doctrine. He's asking questions to people like you and me because he loves you, because he loves people, and because he wants to know you, and he wants to get into your soul to pull out things and to heal things that may be harming you. That's why Jesus is asking these questions. So I hope you're taking time in the season of Lent to hear these questions as ones that Jesus is asking to you. So the question that we get to today uh, is, I think, an important and relevant one for many of us. It's, why do you worry? Uh, and it's in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. So if you'll turn there, Matthew, chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. Uh, th this, this section of the Sermon on the Mount is actually full of multiple questions. Um, I see a few of you kids here today. So why don't you even try to count the number of questions that Jesus asks in this text that might faint off your, your, your boredom a, a little bit. So let's read this text together. Matthew 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. Hear God's word, the words of Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom in his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So we're talking about worry today. And I really want you to know this. I want to say this right in the beginning of the sermon, that I am not coming to you today as a smug, know-it-all preacher who has all the answers to give you to assuage your struggles with anxiety. I just want to admit to you that I am coming as a fellow patient. I'm coming even as an expert in anxiety, something that has been a really chronic struggle for me for much of my life. As early as I can remember in my childhood, I was a kid who worried. I worried as a child about everything. I worried about my body. I worried about tests. I worried about floods, which is very strange because I lived in the Midwest. Um, I, I, I worried about the dentist. Um, I worried about my parents dying or getting a divorce. Uh, later, as I became a student, um, I worried about my grades. I worried about my GPA. I worried about my SAT scores. I worried about getting in the right AP classes so I could get into the best college, so I could get the right job. I remember thinking to myself, as a high school student, I can't wait until I am an adult, because then I won't have to worry anymore. <laughs> and then I became an adult, and I found myself worrying about my career and where I would live and whether I would get married. And then I did get married and I worried about that and I worried about whether we'd have kids and then we did have kids and I worry about them and I do have a career and I worry about that. I worry about the future. I worry about whether I can pay for my kids to go to college. I worry about you all and I worry about my staff and I worry about the future of our church and I worry about the future of our country. And then I find myself thinking at times, well, it's just going to be great when I'm retired because then, because then I won't worry. But see, I've talked to many of you who are retired, and I know that because then at that point, I'm going to worry about whether I have enough for retirement. I'm going to worry about whether my kids are going to be okay, and I'm going to worry about being alone. I'm going to worry about my health, and I'm going to worry about disease, and I'm going to worry about death. So there you have it. Cradle to the grave, my friend. <laughs> and you know, I know it's just not me. You know, it might be a particular problem in my life, but I know it's not just me because I meet with a lot of you and I try to offer <laughs> the very uh, insufficient pastoral care that I can to you. And many of you talk about your worry and your fears. And in fact, this week, um, I rarely go into that dark and menacing place called Facebook, but I did go on Wednesday and I put just a simple question up on my page saying, what is it that you're worrying about right now? And I checked this morning, I had almost 100 responses of 
people saying everything that they worry about their kids to being good parents, to their job security, to their health, to having enough time, to having enough money, to the state of our society, to nuclear war, to climate change, even how I'm gonna, what I'm going to do with all these digital photos that I'm storing on my phone. You know, um, worry is, it is a power. It is a nefarious force. It is an insidious joy killer. And it is universal to humanity. We can see that here that Jesus is speaking actually to first century rural peasants whose lives were riddled with worry. And so how much more does this text apply to us who live in a time that W.H. Auden called the Age of Anxiety. That great poet, W.H. Auden, 70 years ago, wrote an epic poem called The Age of Anxiety in which he was the first person to definitively say that our post-industrial, post-enlightenment world that we live in is one that is principally marked by anxiety and fear. And if I were talking to Mr. Auden today, I'd say, dude, you have no idea. It is the greatest malady of our time. 40 million Americans suffer from anxiety. That is a 25% increase in the last 10 years. 40% of girls, 30% of boys ages 13 to 17 have an anxiety disorder. Anxiety is the most common health problem on college campuses, far exceeding any other problem, including depression. There was a New York Times article last year that went viral that called our country a nation of anxiety. The author said that anxiety has become a shared cultural experience that feeds on alarmist news feeds and metastasizes through social media. As one young woman interviewed in the article put it, if you're a human being living in 2018 and you're not anxious, then something is wrong with you. And that's our situation. And so honestly, hearing this wandering homeless rabbi say, why are you worried? To be honest, sounds pretty naive. Seriously, Jesus, like I'm not a bird. I'm not a flower. Um, you didn't have a mortgage. You didn't have kids. You didn't have in-laws. You know, you, you didn't have to worry about this stuff. Seriously, Jesus? I mean, I, I mean it. It sounds like Jesus has no idea the kind of world that we're living in in the lives that we live, but he does. And he is the living Lord, and he speaks this word, and he asks this question to us every bit as much as he asked it to them. Three times he commands in this text, do not worry. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, that great treatise on how Jesus wants his community to live differently from the world around them. And Jesus says one of the main ways, I want you, my people, to be different, countercultural than the world around you, is that you would be a people who do not worry. Well, how in the world do we do that? That's our question today. So I want to look at this amazing text and just really pull out, I think, what are two great principles, both a challenge and a comfort that Jesus is offering to us to help us deal with our worry and our anxiety. And we need both. We need both the challenge that punches us in the gut and we need the comfort from Jesus that lets us know that we're safe. So let's look first at the comfort. And the comfort is this, remember the Father's care. I encountered a very fascinating book 
by a French sociologist called Alain Ehrenberg. And the name of the book is this, The Weariness of the Self, Diagnosing the History of Depression in the Contemporary Age. Have you read it? It's really good. Anyway, <laughs> as, um, as modern people, he writes, we are told over and over again that our destiny lies in our hands, right? You decide what you're going to do. You decide where you're going to go. You decide who you want to be. Endless possibilities, right? We're, told, we're all told that all growing up, and we teach this to our children. And what Ehrenberg says that is so fascinating in this book is he says, we are the first civilization in the history of humankind to believe those things. No other civilization has ever believed that. Every other people that came before us believed that who you are and your identity was determined by your family, by your upbringing, by the city or the town that you were born in, and your community. And the trajectory of your life was set before you were even born. Now, there's obviously some real negative things to that, especially if you were a person born into an oppressive or unjust system or situation, right? And so now we do have the freedom of being able to have the possibilities to get out of such things. But what Ehrenberg writes is, the terrible thing about this new modern ideology of personal self-autonomy and control is that it creates what he calls the crushing responsibility of freedom. You know, imagine yourself standing in the cereal aisle at Kroger, you know, dude, all I, all I want is some cornflakes, man. And yet this, this overwhelming, <laughs> hundreds of opportunities, it's, it's the overwhelming, crushing responsibility of freedom. But for us, as 21st century modern Americans, it's not just cereal you have that freedom for, it's the very self. That now we don't receive our identity, you create it. Now you don't just receive as a gift who you are, you achieve your very self. Have you, have you seen um, the movie Moana, that great Disney movie? It's a great movie. Uh, it's a kid's movie. Um, but in this movie, it is encapsulating this ideology of personal self-autonomy and control. Because Moana, this young uh, girl from the Pacific Islands, is not, she, she's actually out to create her identity as distinct from her community and her family and what they have told her to be. And so she has to not just discover who she is, but actually create who she is. And that makes for a great movie and a great ending song. I am a wanna, right? But it makes for a horrible life. A horrible, it creates a crushing responsibility of freedom. And so what we've ended up with, what Ehrenberg writes, is this deeply fundamental, fundamental belief of our autonomy and control of our futures has led us to become the most depressed and anxious society ever recorded in human history. Isn't that ironic? Here we are, vast control over our world, the most powerful society ever to be created. We are organized, we are affluent, we are expert, we carry literally supercomputers around in our pockets, we have beautiful homes, we are never want for food, we are never want for anything, and yet the majority of our population feels overwhelmed, disoriented, out of control, and deeply afraid. This is why Jesus' words are so powerful to people like you and me living in the age that we live in. Because over and against the lie that you are a autonomous adult with your destiny in your own hands, responsible to control your own future, Jesus says, no, you are a child of a good father. He's turning your eyes away from your, the autonomous self and turning your eyes to the father. Look at verse 26. 
He says, look, get your eyes off yourself. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. As far as I know, this is the only personal hobby that our Lord Jesus ever commands. Bird watch. Go get yourself a pair of binoculars. Get out there into the woods, friends. Look at creation. Look at the flowers of the field. See how God is present, actively caring, sustaining for his creation. Even the smallest, tiniest things he tends and cares. And yet Jesus says, these are nothing compared to the value that he has placed in you. Take a good look at the person sitting next to you today. If you could calculate their worth in sparrows... Tell that person right now, how many sparrows would it take for you to trade them in? Tell them right now, how many sparrows would it take? Maybe a thousand? A million? A billion? A zillion? Y'all get the point, don't you? Y'all get the point. Jesus says, you are worth far more than many sparrows. And if he watches over even the tiniest sparrows and cares for them, how much more valuable are you? How deeply he cares for you? How lovingly he attends to even your smallest needs? And by giving us this great truth, Jesus is undercutting the lie that fuels the worry of our hearts. The lie says to us every day, you are alone. Nobody's home. No one's taking care of you. No one's there to help. You are an orphan set adrift in a chaotic world, and it's up to you to take control of your life and order your future. And against that lie, Jesus says, you have a father, a good father. You are loved, you are treasured. He is intimately involved in your everyday life. He doesn't just care about your soul and where you're going after you die. He cares about your personal, physical life, your financial life, your, famili- your family life. He knows what you need and he knows exactly when you need it. And if you don't have it, it's because he knows something that you don't know about what you need right now. He says, don't be like the pagans who run around fretting because they don't think that there's anybody to take care of their life except themselves. He says, you have a father. He is home. He is good. He's in charge and he knows what's going on. Rest in the care of the Father who loves you. I love uh, Wendell Berry, and I love a particular poem that he's written called The Peace of Wild Things. Y'all don't mind if I read you a poem, do you? Is that cool? Even if it's not, I'm going to read it anyway. Um, Just listen, listen, even if you don't like poetry, listen. When despair for the world grows in me, And I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light for a time I rest in the grace of the world, and I am free. What Barry's poem encapsulates is that there is this deep freedom that comes from resting in the truth that God make me, like all creatures, with profound limitations. It is exhausting to try to control things that you were never meant to control. And it is a freeing thing to accept your place as a creature in the order of creation, and to surrender yourself to the one 
who oversees and rules all things. I love the, uh, the children's book. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called Duck for President. You ever read that book? Uh, it's about a duck who's always trying to do things that ducks shouldn't do. He actually runs for president and he wins, amazingly, because I guess because the other candidates were so terrible. It sort of speaks to our situation today. Um, but, but, you know, what happens is he's a, he's a duck, he's, he's sitting as the president for a while, and then, um, and then he, after a couple of weeks, he just gets so tired of it because it's a terrible job. And so he decides he's going to go back to being a duck. And so at the end of the book, he's sitting on the pond and he's totally at peace because he realizes ducks should not be presidents. Ducks can just be ducks. When you're a duck, there's freedom in just being a duck. And when you're a human, there's freedom in just being a human. And when you reject your place as a creature and you try to be a creator, and when you reject your place as a human and you try to behave as God, assuming control over your life and your future that you were never meant to possess, you will always find anxiety and worry spilling out into your life. So embrace your limitations and be free in them. Just be a duck. Just be a human. Just be the child of the Father. Just rest in his abundant provision for you, your past, your present, your future. How different would your life be if you really believed that? How different your life would be? So that's, that's the first great comfort that Jesus is offering, to remember the Father's care. But he also gives us a punch in the gut with a challenge. Because I think what Jesus does is he knows that if you just kind of tell yourself all day long, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, but you continue to live like, can I say it, like a pagan, running around, anxious, restless, building your life, sitting in the throne of your own life, achieving, building a successful life for yourself, that if you don't alter the priorities of your life, then you will never shut off the anxiety valve in your soul. That for many of us, there is a direct correlation between living a self-centered life and an anxious life. And so Jesus is challenging that. He says in verse 25, is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? I want to be clear that Jesus is not telling us to disregard our personal and material needs. He's not telling us to sort of wear tattered clothes and have bad teeth and bad hair and don't care about saving and don't invest your money and don't put away things for retirement. No, Jesus isn't saying that. There's plenty of places, even in the book of Proverbs, that talk about the importance of saving and investing. But he is saying that the pursuit of those things can no longer be your all-consuming ambition and priority. That it can no longer be the things that consume your mind and absorb your efforts and fill up your time and fuel your fears. He says, be careful what you prioritize because the more value you give to the wrong things, the more anxiety will fill your life. So let's just think of a couple of examples of this. Money, I think, is an easy one because we all know that money is good and we pay our mortgages with it and we pay our gas with it. We, you know, we send our kids to college with it. But what happens when money becomes an all-consuming priority in your life? What happens when money becomes the thing that you value above all other things? It just breaks open the floodgates in your life of anxiety. You find yourself thinking about it all the time, constantly checking the status of your accounts and the stock market, worrying if you'll have enough stashed away. It prohibits you from being generous because you're always worried about whether you're gonna have enough for yourself or for your children. 
So by misprioritizing money in your life, it actually opens up the floodgates of anxiety. It becomes almost like a, 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 a doorway to the worry and the fear that was never meant to flood your soul. So money's easy, but take like children for an example. This is a much harder one. Children are a gift of the Lord. Many of you are parents. I'm a parent. Some of you are grandparents. And he's given us children as gifts to take care of and to love them and provide for them. But what happens if your children become too important to you? What happens if you misprioritize them? Well, did y'all watch that college admissions scandal unfurl this week? And those parents who, basically parents, wealthy parents, paid lots of money to get their kids into prestigious colleges. I hope you didn't judge them too much. Because though they, many of them have means that we don't have, they have the same souls as you and I do. And we have the same impulse inside of us. And when we exalt our kids too much, and when we misprioritize them, and we make their success and the flourishing of their futures to be all important to our ambitions, then we end up profoundly hurting them. And we smother them, and we pass our anxieties onto them, and we do stupid things on their behalf that can end up ruining their lives. By putting the kids at the center of your life, you actually harm them, and you harm yourself. So Jesus is saying, watch it. Watch what you value. When you misplace something in its value, which is called idolatry, anxiety and worry will come flooding into your life. So what should you value then? What should you prioritize? What Jesus says it right here, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says clearly, if you are a follower of Jesus, your utmost priority in life must be Jesus, the Father, and his kingdom. Let your greatest ambition, he says, to know God, to surrender to him, to obey him, to spend time with him in his word and in prayer, and then to see his kingdom get fleshed out in the world around you. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. Rearrange your life to get in on what God is doing in the world. And what is God doing? He's restoring broken things. He's mending broken relationships. He's redeeming and healing a broken creation. Make peace between enemies. Care for the poor, the orphan, the alien, the widow. Spread the good news of Jesus far and wide. Invest your time in money that things will, that will actually last. See, Jesus isn't against, against ambition at all. He's just saying, your ambitions are just way too small. Having successful kids and retiring comfortably and making a lot of money. What, what small ambitions these are. How paltry, how menial compared to the great ambition of Jesus and his kingdom in which he is at work renewing all things. Make that your life's ambition, your supreme concern. And when you do, he says this funny thing happens. You find that anxiety for the things that previously occupied you are no longer reigning in your heart. You find that when you are consumed with the pursuit of Jesus and his kingdom in the world, you just don't care so much about your countertops anymore. And, 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 and having the perfect kitchen isn't so valuable to you. And it's not that big of a deal if your kid doesn't get into the very best 
college and if things happen that are out of your control, you're up to handle it a little bit better because your priorities have shifted. You are no longer asking, how today can I advance the life that I want? And instead you're asking, how today can I seek Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom in whatever circumstance I happen to find myself in today? So he may be, to some of you, challenging you. He's also comforting you, but he's challenging you that it might take for you to reprioritize what is the supreme ambition of your life. So here's what I'd like to do here at the end. I just want to try to apply this text to just give you some very practical things that have helped me with this text to deal with worry in everyday life. And I'm a little concerned about this. I actually worried a lot this week about my sermon on worry um, because I don't want to give the impression that worry is a simple thing to fix and you just put, you know, some nice Bible verses and some platitudes in place, then, hey, you're worry-free. I don't want to give that impression. Anxiety is very complicated. Um, it can be a, a, a chronic, um, even chemical condition. You, you may need therapy. You may need medicine. I've needed both over the years. And so I just want to encourage you to not just beat yourself up if you're having trouble with anxiety. You might need someone who's more professional to help you out. And I'd love to talk to you about that. Margie Satterfield would love to talk to you about that. Yet, all of us, I think, have everyday worries. And I think uh, the words of Jesus can actually give us some very practical guidance of how we deal with the worries in our everyday life. So let me just talk about a few of those things. First of all, I think what Jesus' words encourage us to do is to pay attention to what you pay attention to. Here's what I mean. Um, I, doctors have now proven and demonstrated that one of the main causes for this anxiety spike over the last 10 years is our constant digital connectedness. We're always on. We carry these phones around in our pocket. They're always beeping or buzzing or notifying us about something. Many of us check our phones last thing before we go to bed. When we wake up in the middle of the night, first thing we wake up in the morning, constant push notifications. I mean, I remember I, on Friday, actually, when I was writing this sermon, there was like a notification that popped up about melting polar ice caps. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> like, you know, as I'm writing the sermon, uh, social media fuels our insecurities that you're not enough, that others are more successful and beautiful and happier and their kids are better well-behaved, have a lot more going on, better vacations. You know, you, you, you're, I'm constantly being overwhelmed by the things that I don't know, that I should be reading, that I should be worried about. It's no wonder we live with what one person called ambient anxiety, just all the time. So one basic practice, I think that Jesus is being very practical here. He's saying, stop paying attention to the things that fuel the lies of personal autonomy and control, and pay attention instead to those things that fuel the truth that you have a good father who loves you. So how might you do that? Well, real practically, get that phone off your body. Seriously, like get it off your body. Don't carry it around with you all the time. You get home, stick it in a drawer, close the drawer. Don't bring it up into your bedroom. Leave it downstairs. Uh, one family in our church, the Lamphiers, they have a, a, ba a basket in their kitchen that's called the nest. They put all their devices in there. They stay in there. You know? um, if you must use social media, which I highly doubt and question its benefit, um, 
then set a strict schedule for yourself in which you only check it once a day or once a week. Don't watch cable news, uh, this endless feed of static that fuels our worst imaginations about the other. Instead, what I do is subscribe to a once-a-day email or a podcast that summarizes the day's news for you so you can know what's going on. So don't pay attention to things that fuel the lie, and instead pay attention to the things that fuel the truth. So what do you do? Get outside. Seriously, birdwatch, look, look at creation. Be present, be embodied. Go on a long walk to take in the Father's goodness. And for God's sake, don't bring your phone to Instagram, the journey. <laughs> you know? um, when you're waiting in line or waiting at a stoplight, don't pull out your phone, but instead use it as a cue to do something else, to memorize a psalm. Uh, carry around those small rectangular things called a book that, that actually uses a different part of the brain. That instead of nursing a fren the frenetic neural pathways of your brain, actually puts your mind at rest. So our habits of attention profoundly shape the state of our souls because they're either fueling the lie or fueling the truth. So that's one thing we can do is pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Another thing you can do that has really helped me a lot is focus only on today. I love what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The reason I love that verse is because it shows us that Jesus is not this like first century Bob Marley strumming a ukulele, singing, don't worry, be happy. Everything's cool. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's actually deeply tuned in to the fact that our lives are full of trouble because he was, he's a human himself and he knows how broken and troubled and difficult life can be as a human. And so here, he gives you permission to be concerned about that trouble, but only, listen, this is the key, only the trouble of today. He does not permit you to deal with the trouble of tomorrow. And he knows that we are not capable of handling all of the unknown sorrows and troubles that lie before us in the days ahead. Do you know that Americans eat on the average 1,996 pounds of food a year? That's 75 to 85 tons of food in a lifetime. Now, what if you walked into a warehouse and all the food you will ever eat is just sitting there on the floor? You know, all 7,000 pounds of butter. Yum, right? All 14,000 pounds of beef and pork just sitting there on the floor. And then someone said to you, this is what you're supposed to eat. Gross, right? Like, you don't, how are you going to get through that? Except we all do. We all do. And how do you get through it? One day at a time. That's the only way you can. And so don't drag into the warehouse of your soul all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the, I mean, how are you going to deal with all of the trouble and all the pain and all of the sorrow and all the death and all the disease, everything that you will ever have to face? Don't drag it into a warehouse and take it in all at once. What does Jesus say? Do it one day, one day at a time. Do not let your mind move into tomorrow. I love what Ed Welch says, worriers are visionaries minus the hope. <laughs> they are false prophets of the future, proclaiming what will be without any real authority to name it. So Jesus calls us 
away from tomorrow and on today. So here's what I do when you find yourself worrying about anything that involves the future, which is almost everything. Hear Jesus saying to you, let's not go there. Let's just focus on the trouble for today. And let me show you that the Father's grace is sufficient for you today. For this meeting that you have that's going to be so hard, today. For this cancer treatment that you have to go through, today. For this difficult conversation you have to have with a colleague, today. For the challenging uh, discipline situation you have with your child, today. His grace is sufficient for you, today. One last thing. Um, do a daily faith transfer. Uh, verse 30 says, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. At the heart of worry is a faith problem. Our problem is, is that when we worry, we have very little faith in God, yet we have very big faith in ourselves. Worry is actually a form of pride. Have you ever thought about that? Because when you worry, you're actually suggesting that you have great confidence in your own capacity to understand what your life most needs and your ability to control its outcomes. You understand what I'm saying? So faith, when you worry, you're actually expressing very small faith in God, very big faith in yourself. And what Jesus is saying is you have to daily, sometimes even multiple times a day, do a faith transfer where you get the responsibility for your life off yourself and you put it onto the good father instead. This, this week was a beautiful week of weather and um, I rode my two smallest girls to school every morning this week. And um, little Phoebe, she's nine, she's in this little bean pole and she's got this big old backpack that is full of books because she loves to read and it's super heavy. I swear it must weigh more than she does. And so the first day we got on our bikes and she was right in front of me and she had this big old backpack and she just started going sinking backwards and backwards like this. And, and, and so I said, get up, get off the bike, get off the bike. So I ran up to her, I said, honey, your little back was not meant to bear so large a thing. And take it off. So she, she took off this backpack. I put it onto my backpack. I put it onto my back and we rode happily to school. Later that afternoon, you know, I was doing what I always do. I was fretting, I was worrying, I was anxious about something. And I thought of that and I just, I almost heard my own words to her as the father's words to me. Your little back is not meant to bear so large a thing. Your little back is not meant to bear so large a thing. Peter says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand and cast all your anxiety on him that he would care for you. Did you hear that? Humble yourself. Stop acting so big. You're little. You're little. You're just a little thing. Humble yourself. Just be a duck. Just be a human. Humble yourself. Repent. Turn away from faith in yourself and cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You could even do that. You could even make it physical. You're, you start feeling worrying, you just, just, go like, just go like this. Just take it off your own. It might be a little awkward in a meeting if someone sees you like going like this. But hey, yeah, you could do it like in your spirit or you could do it under the table, you know. Just give, it, just give it over to him. Do a daily, hourly, minute by minute faith transfer. You to the Father, you to the Father, you to the Father. So here's, here's the good news of Jesus' question. He's calling us to rest in the Father's care, to know that you are loved and treasured, to reprioritize the ambitions of your life, that you might be a person who is free. And I want you to remember, brothers and sisters, that the one telling us this is the only person in the history of the world who actually has ever literally been alone. 
He was abandoned, taking our sin and judgment upon himself on the cross, bearing it down into the judgment and hell. And he did this so that we could hear the words. You were never alone. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus loves us. The one who spoke these words did this, did this for us so that we can know that we are never alone, that if nations fall and kingdoms totter and mountains melt, even if the worst disasters occur, you have a father who loves you, who made you, who knows you, who knows your needs, who will provide for you, and who holds the future and ensures that it is good. I say with all truth, no irony, no sentimentality. I promise you, everything's going to be okay. Jesus reigns. Everything is going to be okay. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Let's pray. Here's what I want you to do. Think of one thing right now that you're worrying about. And just name it to Jesus. Just name it to him. And I'd love for you to do this if you're comfortable. Just open your hands. Set them in your lap. Palms facing upward. And just say to Jesus, I need you to take this from me. I need to remember that I am a child and that I have a father. That I'm not big enough to control my own future, my own life. I rest in your love.